We're going to be going to Ezekiel chapter 38 this morning. Ezekiel chapter 38. As you're turning there, let me just, <clears throat> I'm losing my voice already, so it may not be a long message, but um, I just wanted to say something about Pastor Paul. He was here when I came. Many of you may not have met him because he hasn't been able to be with us for a couple of years, but he was a great encouragement kind of a mentor to me, getting accommodated to the church, acclimated to the people, gave me a lot of insight as far as um, what had happened here at the church, and I know he led this church through some very difficult times, and so I'm, I'm going to miss him. I uh, had spent several uh, lunches with him, uh, just times talking, not about you, but about the church as a whole. And um, so now the Lord has chosen to take him home. So praise the Lord for Pastor Paul, but we're going to miss him immensely. So as Brandon mentioned, just keep his family in your prayers this week and um, our church as well, because even though he hasn't been here, he was an integral part of it. So Ezekiel chapter 38. um, Last week, we finished talking about the Millennial Kingdom And the end of the Millennial Kingdom, the great battle that will take place, it's really not a battle, it's a rebellion called Gog and Magog in chapter 20 of Revelation where Satan is loosed at the end of the Millennial Kingdom. He rounds up all the rebels of the earth and then tries to come up in war against Jesus Christ and against God. And God destroys them all. And then Satan and all wicked people are sentenced to their eternal destination in hell where they will be punished forever. Revelation 20 calls that event Gog and Magog, but it's not necessarily the name of it. It's more of a comparison. And the comparison that we're going to see here is to this event in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. And there's no way I can teach this in depth in about 35 or 40 minutes. And so I'm going to give you a quick overview of the battle of Gog and Magog as we see it in Ezekiel 38 and 39. So we're going to start by reading the first eight verses, and then we'll just take it in chunks, and I'll give you insight into this these chapters and this battle of Gog and Magog as Ezekiel records for us in his vision. So starting in verse 1, and I'm reading from the ASV. Uh, it's very close to the King James, so if it's a little bit different, you'll understand why says, the word of Jehovah came unto me, saying, Son of man, set thy face toward Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and prophesy against him. And say, thus saith the Lord Jehovah, Behold, I am against thee, O Gog, prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and I will turn thee about and put hooks into thy jaws, and I will bring thee forth and all thine army, horses and horsemen, all of them clothed, in full armor, a great company with buckler and shield, all of them handling swords, Persia, Cush, and put with them, all of them with shield and helmet, Gomer and in all his hordes, the house of Togarma in the uttermost parts of the north, and all his hordes, even many peoples with thee. Be thou prepared, yea, prepare thyself, thou and all thy companies that are assembled unto thee, and be thou a guard unto them. After many days thou shalt be visited. In the latter years thou shalt come into the land that is brought back from the sword, that is gathered out of many peoples upon the mountains of Israel, which have been a continual waste. 
but it is brought forth out of the peoples, and they shall dwell securely, all of them. We'll stop there for now. Let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll uh, dig into this chapter a little bit. Lord, we just ask for your guidance now as we look at this passage of Scripture that uh, many times prophecy is difficult to understand or to apply, and Lord, you've given it to us for a reason, so I pray that you would help us to understand at least the things that you want us to know now. And so, Lord, guide us as we go through this passage together. I pray that you give me wisdom, fill me with your spirit. May I speak truth from your word and not opinion so that we're all edified and built up as your people. Lord, we want you to do your work, and we want you to have all the glory for what's done today. So we thank you for your word and for what you're going to accomplish through it today. And we praise you and pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Gog and Magog here appear originally in Ezekiel. The reference that we read last week in Revelation 20, verses 7 through 8, is kind of a comparison to this. And that's why the reference shows up in Revelation 20, and there's not much given about what happens in that event. But while these two passages use the same names for the battle, if you study Scripture closely, what you'll see is that these are actually two different events. They're not the same thing, even though they use the same name, okay? And I'll uh, submit to you today that these events are separated by at least a thousand years, which is the period of the Millennial Kingdom. What we read in Revelation 20 last week appears at the end of the Millennial Kingdom when Satan is loosed and rises up in rebellion against Christ, one last time gathering hordes of people who are rebellious from the earth to go against Jesus on his throne. This vision and prophecy of Ezekiel in uh, chapter 38 and 39 talk about the battle of Gog and Magog, but this battle is prophesied um, and will happen before the Millennial Kingdom. And so we have to understand the difference between these two. And before we get into this, let me give you just four differences that we're going to see between what we saw in the battle of Gog and Magog in Revelation 20 and what we're going to see here in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. So first of all, in these chapters, chapter 38 and 39 from Ezekiel, the armies will come primarily from the north and will involve only a few nations of the earth, of all the nations of the earth. The battle in Revelation that we saw last time involves all the nations of the earth. Remember when Satan goes to the four corners of the earth to gather together the rebellious people. So there's one difference. Number two, in these chapters, there's no mention of Satan as being the instigator of this. In fact, the instigator is God. And we'll see that as we look through this passage. In Revelation, it's Satan who rises up and gathers his army to rebel against Christ. Here in Ezekiel chapter 39, as we'll get to it, it says that the dead of that battle will be buried for seven months. In other words, it will take them seven months to bury all the dead from it. If we were talking about the end of the uh, millennial kingdom, there's not seven months period that will take place after that battle before the earth is destroyed. And so there will be no need to bury the dead because God's going to destroy the earth and heavens and create a new heaven and earth just after that uh, event. And immediately following Revelation is the great white throne judgment when all unbelievers are judged. So again, if it takes seven months to bury the dead, 
That can't be the event in Revelation chapter 20. And then finally, the battle here in Ezekiel 38 and 39, the main purpose is for God to glorify himself and to bring Israel back to himself, to help them refocus on him. In the millennial kingdom, Israel will already have done that. That happens at the end of the tribulation period, where Israel is restored to their land, reconciled with God, and they have been, in a sense, they've received the benefits, the blessing of the new covenant all through the millennial kingdom. So there's no need for that if we get to the end of the millennial kingdom. Israel's already focused on God at that point. So there's some differences that we see going into this. And as we look at the details of this battle in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39, um, you'll see that more in depth. So uh, we've read the first eight verses. Let me just point out and try to answer some questions about what Ezekiel is talking about here, because I think this is actually relevant to us today. And we'll see that as we look at the details here. First of all, the question is, who are we talking about? Who is this Gog and Magog? Okay, well, Gog is not necessarily a person's name. It's more of a title, okay? It is like Tsar or Kaiser or Pharaoh. And so in using that name Gog, it's not necessarily this guy is named Gog. It is a leader, and that is the title that he uses, the leader of this allied army that comes against Christ as we read through this passage. And then if you're using probably, a, I think it's an NASV, it says instead of chief prince, which is in the ESV and the King James, the ASV and the NASV use the name Rosh, the prince of Rosh. That Rosh is possibly an early form of the name Russia. Okay, So when we talk about who this is, It is a chief prince, but it's connected with Russia. I'll give you more information on that in a minute. So that's Gog, okay? We're talking about a leader here of title. Magog is the army or the conglomeration of nations that follow him. Now, Magog actually appears in Scripture before this, way back in Genesis chapter 10. And in Genesis chapter 10, we have what's called the Table of Nations, which tells us, remember, right after the flood, Noah has three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And from them, all the nations of the earth came about. Now, the nations um, from each of them and were actually given a genealogy of the sons and grandsons of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And in Re- uh, Revelation, in Genesis chapter 10, verse 2, it gives us the sons of Japheth. And it says in Genesis chapter 10, verse 2, the sons of Japheth are Gomer and Magog, same word, and Madai and Javan and Tubal, we'll see that word again, and Meshach, we'll see that word again, and Tiras. So the descendants of Magog are what we're talking about here in this battle in Ezekiel. It's the descendants of the, of the grandson of Noah, the son of Japheth, His name is Magog, and we're told that in Genesis chapter 10, verse 2. His descendants, and it says, um, there's also two others, Meshach and Tubal. Those names show up here in Ezekiel chapter 38 as well. They're all from the same family, from the family of Japheth. And they settled as they migrated far to the north and northeast of Israel, probably in Europe and Asia, in the areas that we used to know as the United Soviet Socialist Republic. 
which we now call Russia. Okay, so we see this reference to Gog and Magog, this name Rosh, give us an initial connection at least to Russia. Scythia and Parthia are recent names for these areas. In in, uh, Paul's day, in fact, they called them the Scythians, and the grace of God was shown, and even that the Scythians could be saved. But he's talking about these migrants from the far north, the tribes that descended from Japheth through uh, through Magog, Meshach, and Tubal, all descendants of Noah, and this is where they live. So we have the geography that points to Russia, We also have names that point to Russia here. And so Magog is a people group and the land from which the leader originates. And Jewish historians through history actually identify this as Russia. In fact, the Talmud teaches Jews that this is talking about Russia. All right. Now, in connecting Russia to this Rosh, to this chief prince, or the main country that is instigated or that instigates this uh, attack. Russia, or these people that we're talking about, have been an enemy of Israel since basically the nations began, okay? We don't read a lot about them in the Bible because it wasn't major conflict, but they've been against Israel through all of history, especially Russia. And it doesn't seem like in history, in, even in our recent history, you see Russia against Israel, but they've been in the background, of this persecution against Israel for many, many years. Ever since Israel became a nation in 1948, Russia has funded every war against them. They've not been directly involved, but they've sent weapons and money to fund the nations that rise up against Israel. Russia has supplied weapons for Israel's enemies. When you look at the Islamic countries and the Islamic armies that come against Israel all the time, what are their primary weapons? AK-47s made in Russia. And so they're using Russian weapons against Israel. Russia has provided fuel for Iran's nuclear reactors. They've helped them to modernize their weapons of war. And since the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, Russia has developed military ties to all of the Islamic countries of northern Africa and the Mideast, including Iran. Now, you look at and think about who has been fighting against Israel for all of these years since 1948, all of these countries that Russia now has ties with and is supporting militarily. Russia hasn't been involved directly, but they're the force and the money behind it. In fact, back in 1991, we know, if you know history, the Soviet Union broke up and it became a bunch of little country states that surrounded Russia. Every single one of them, except a few of those independent states, the religion, the majority religion in those countries is Islam. In fact, the largest and fastest growing religion in Russia is Islam, in addition to atheism. Christianity really has not gained a foothold in any of these areas, except maybe a few of the smaller countries. And so Islam rules all of these nations, including Russia. I'm not saying Russia's government is Islamic, but Islam is the major religion in Russia, and it's continuing to grow faster than any other religion. So we have Gog and Magog named in the beginning of chapter 38. We have this prince of Rosh, or the chief prince of this army, 
who seems to be connected or comes from Russia. And then it goes on and it gives us some other names, Meshach and Tubal. And again, both of these are sons of Japheth, and they were also areas that people use these names to connect to cities or areas of, of uh, the, 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 the country that where Russia is now. Some scholars actually have taken these names, Meshach and Tubal, and connected them to two cities that are more modern, Moscow, which we know as the capital of Russia, and there's also a, a city named Tobolsk, which is the capital of Siberia, also under Russia's control. And say these two names, Moscow and Tobolsk, are just derivatives of Meshach and Tubal. Now, I'm not a linguist, and I can't verify that, but there's a lot of scholars who believe that is true. So we have this major connection to Russia right off the bat here. And it's very possible that Russia becomes the leader or the main one that instigates this attack against Israel. Then there's a few other names, and these are other countries. It goes down the list, and it says Persia. Now, anybody who's familiar with Bible history should know, understand and recognize the name Persia. Persia has been a major nation in the world ever since the time of Daniel, going back even before that. Um, but going forward in modern history up until 1939, it was called Persia. After 1939, the country's name became Iran. So we're talking about Iran here, when as we see Persia and the, and the area around Iran. There's also part of Iraq as part of that as well. Then there's the name Cush. Cush is translated in many versions as Ethiopia. And in Bible times, it referred to an area that Ethiopia now exists in, but it also includes the areas of Sudan and some other countries around that area. It's referring to an area called the Northern Nile, before you get to Egypt, the Northern Nile region. So it's basically North Africa, just south of Egypt. And today we would recognize the countries of Egypt and Sudan in there. Um, some also connect Somalia and some of the smaller countries, but... Think Sudan, Ethiopia. Then we come to the name Put. The, and the name Put goes back, and again, we trace this based on people groups who migrated into certain areas uh, during the early years of, of uh, after the flood. But Put includes the areas of Libya and Algeria. Again, we're talking about northern Africa. Now, if you think about the countries that I just named, what is the one common theme? Islam. Okay, so we see this connection between all of these city, all of these countries. All of them are um, are ruled by a majority of Islam as far as a religion, and in many the governments as well. So here's the connection that brings all these people together. After put, we have this name Gomer. And then after Gomer is Beth Togarma. Now let me explain these. Gomer is actually the first of Noah's grandsons. Okay, we have that name back in, in Genesis chapter 10 as well. So we have a name that we can connect with. Ezekiel here calls these people Gomer along with Togarma, and it says they're from the north. Now Gomer uh, can be connected with an area in northern Turkey, which in New Testament times was called Galatia. And in fact, the Jewish historian Joseph Josephus records that uh, people who were called Galatians, uh, those people were called Galatians or Gauls in those days. Now we have the book of Galatians, okay? So we're talking about that area of the country that Paul wrote to and visited in his missionary journey. Um, and basically today it's, it's northern Turkey. 
Now, uh, the Talmud refers to Gomer as Germania. And in English, we would call that Germany. So we may include Germany in this as well. And both Turkey as well as Germany have also adopted Islam as a major religion of their country and has influence in both countries in the government. So the, now let me talk about the house of Togarma. This is Beth Togarma. Beth just means house in Hebrew. And so it's talking about the house of Togarma or the sons, the descendants of Togarma. Some say this includes what we'd call the stands of the Soviet Union, all these little states. You know, we have Afghanistan and Kazakhstan and Izakstan and, and whatever stand, okay, all these little countries that are stands. Um, some scholars say that includes those. And again, based on records of migration, it also includes what we know as Armenia or Turkey as well. Okay, so we have for us to find kind of an area of the Mideast of Asia and Eastern Europe that we're talking about in these countries that Ezekiel lists here. And so just a quick list, we have a coalition led by, led by Russia that includes Iran, Ethiopia, Sudan, Libya, Algeria, Germany, and Turkey. And then verse 6 says, even many peoples with thee. Now, there could be other nations. We don't know because it doesn't define them. But these, we can come to a conclusion uh, relatively close to the, the actual uh, group of people that we're talking about as far as who we're talking about here. But there's a common link, and I want you to keep that in mind. It's Islam. Now, where does this take place? You have to jump down to verse 8. Okay? And in chapter 38, verse 8, it tells us, After many days thou shalt be visited, in the latter years thou shalt come back into the land that is brought back from the sword, and is gathered out of many people against the mountains of Israel, which have always been waste. So there's four clues there that tell us where this is, and the third one actually outright states it's the mountains of Israel. So we know where they're headed. They're going to Israel, all right? And so the four clues, the land brought back from the sword, that's a reference to the exile of Israel uh, during the Assyrian, the Babylonian conquest. Israel lost all of its land. They were exiled for many years, uh, 70 years in Babylon, and then eventually were brought back under Ezra and Nehemiah. But that didn't last. Okay, After 70 AD, when Rome came in and conquered, destroyed Jerusalem and the temple, Israel was scattered, and they haven't controlled the land or been in the land for as a whole since, up until 1948. And I want you to keep that in mind because we'll see that in just a second. But the land brought back from the sword, and then his talk is about is gathered out of many peoples. That's Israel. It's talking about the Israelites or the Jews, a land with mountains that have been a continual waste. That's the mountains of Israel. And so Ezekiel is not describing Israel during any biblical time period because Israel was not like this during any time period that we see in the Bible, except maybe shortly after the Assyrian and Babylonian conquest, but even then it was still inhabited, okay? After 70 AD, it became a wasteland, and the, literally the country of Israel, there was nothing there. It was basically just a trade route that nobody really established anything, and the different uh, empires that rose up and the different countries that took power after the Roman Empire just kind of assumed that this was no man's land. 1948 changed all that. In 1948, Israel was reestablished as a nation after World War, World War II. 
and more than three million Jews migrated in the years following that reestablishment of Israel, and they were regathered into their land, just like Ezekiel tells us. And so when Ezekiel is talking about a land in which the people were regathered that laid a continual waste, that's referring to 1948 when Israel became a country again. And by the way, since this battle occurs, and it tells us it occurs in the mountains of Israel, it can't be the millennial battle of Gog and Magog because before the millennium, remember, the earth basically is flattened and the only hill is where the temple stands. And we saw last week the armies marched across the great plain of the earth. Here they're in the mountains. It's got to be a different battle, just from that clue. Verse 8 also gives us the timing. First of all, we have several references in these verses to the latter years or the latter days in this passage. Now, these phrases, the latter years and the latter days in the Old Testament, are eschatological. Okay, They're talking about, in our, in our uh, vernacular, the end times. But there's a broad category of end times. It's not just the tribulation or just the millennial kingdom. It is all the time that leads up to that period when the latter days will take place. Okay, In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives with his disciples. And his disciples asked a question, and it says they came to him privately in verse 3, saying, tell us, when shall these things be? Jesus talking about his kingdom and the end of the world. And Jesus answered in verse 4, he says, Take heed that no man lead you astray, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and shall lead many astray. Ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled. For these things must needs come to pass, but the end is not yet. So Jesus said, here's the things that you will see, but this isn't the end yet. There's still things that are going to take place. And when he says the end, what he's talking about is the tribulation and the kingdom. That would be the end of the time of the Gentiles at the end of the tribulation when Jesus sets up his kingdom. So he says the end is not yet. And then he goes on. He says, for nation shall rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There shall be famines and earthquakes in diverse places. But all these things are the beginning of the travail. So there's a time period which he calls birth pangs. It's like comparing, uh, you know, a pregnant woman before she gives birth. The birth hasn't happened yet, but man, when she starts labor, and it could be weeks that she starts having those labor pains, that's the time Jesus is referring to. So it's before the end. And he says, all these things are the beginning of travail. Then they shall deliver you up into tribulation, shall kill you. You shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And then shall many stumble and shall deliver up one another and shall hate one another. Many false prophets shall arise and lead many astray. And because iniquity shall be multiplied, the love of many shall wax cold. But he that endureth to the end, the same shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world for a testimony unto all nations. So he gives all of these things that he says, here's the signs which are leading up to the end, but it's not the end yet. And he says, and then the end shall come. And he's not talking specifically just about the final destruction of the earth. He's talking about what we call the end times, the tribulation period, starting with the rapture of the church, the tribulation period, and then the millennial kingdom. And then we have the new heaven and earth, which we'll see in chapter 21 and 22. So this end is talking about the days leading up to the tribulation. 
So this event in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39 could very well be or begin before the tribulation begins that we've read about in, in Revelation. So I'm giving you kind of a time frame. Now, there's different viewpoints on that. Some people say, well, no, it starts at the beginning of the tribulation. No, it starts in the middle of the tribulation. I'm going to give you some reasons why I don't lean that way, and I'm not adamant. I can't say, oh, this is the way it's got to be. I'm going to give you some clues from Scripture that, that help me to get to where I am. I don't want you just to say, well, that's what I believe because pastor believes that, okay? Look at Scripture. We're going to, when we're going to look at some more verses, but look at what the Bible says and then make your decision based on Scripture, not just based on a conjecture, okay? Now, as, ta- as far as the time frame again, in verse 8 it says, when the Jews are gathered from many nations to the mountains of Israel, which had long been desolate. Again, that's a reference to the Jews being regathered in 1948 as they received their country back. And it says, when Israel has been brought back from the sword and dwells in safety. Now, many commentators and many theologians believe that that phrase dwells in safety then excludes the fact that it can happen before the millennial kingdom. And so they place this in the millennial kingdom because Israel, it seems like, is at battle and is fighting wars all the way up until Christ sets up his kingdom on earth and then uh, Israel finds peace. But I want you to look at the word. The word says dwells in safety. It does not say it dwells in peace. In fact, there are no references in the Hebrew to shalom, which is peace, in this passage. So safety is different than peace. Peace is what they will have in the millennial kingdom. Safety is what they have in the security of their nation. And that doesn't preclude them having war out going on outside. So when Israel is brought back from the sword and dwells in safety, think about modern-day Israel now. Yes, there are nations that want to destroy them. But Israel, by God's grace and with God's help, has been able to defend themselves ever since they became a nation against those countries that want to drive them back out of their land. The greatest threat they are going to face is the Antichrist in the time of the tribulation. But at this time... Israel dwells in safety. Israel is one of the only nations on the earth that has developed what's called an iron dome defense system where they can actually shoot, detect and shoot down incoming missiles before they ever get to the, to the land and explode. Okay, They are extremely advanced in military ways. Their economics are advanced as far as uh, comparison to other countries in the world and especially in the Mideast. You, you, if you know anything about Israel, you can um, read about the scientific discoveries. I think more scientific patents have come out of Israel than any other country. So God has blessed them, and they are literally dwelling in safety now. Okay? And that's what I believe Ezekiel is talking about here. It's not the millennial kingdom. It's about right now, or the days leading up to the tribulation. Now, to further put this in context, I want you just to be aware. I'm not going to read it all. I encourage you, go back and read. We're doing two chapters today, very quickly. Go back to Ezekiel 36 and 37. In Ezekiel 36 and 37, God gives prophecy to Ezekiel about Israel being restored, 
about them rising up. In chapter 37, we have the vision of Ezekiel of the valley of dry bones, and God breathes life back into them. That is a prophecy regarding the, the, the rebirth of the nation of Israel in 1948. Okay, It can be very well applied to that actual event. And so that's chapter 36 and chapter 37. Then we have the battle of Gog and Magog in chapter 38 and 39. And then chapter 40, or actually the the end of chapter 39, God talks about the restoration of Israel and reconciliation to himself. And chapter 40 begins the building of the millennial temple. So it has to happen before the millennial kingdom ever starts. And so we know it's someplace between 1948 and the end of the tribulation. So that narrows our time frame immensely. Now, we'll come back to this a little bit later, okay? But that gives you a time frame. What's the goal of the nations that rise up in war? First of all, I want to point this out. God instigates this. In the first six verses, we read that God puts hooks in the jaws and draws these nations out to battle. And there's a reason, and we'll see that in just a minute. But in verses 9 through 16, we see the goal, and I'm just going to highlight verse 12. It says, to take spoil, to take prey, to turn thy hand against the waste places that are now inhabited, against the people that are gathered out of the nations that have gotten cattle and goods and dwell in the middle of the earth. As far as these nations are concerned, their goal is to profit through gaining resources, It's not so much necessarily that they want to be a great nation on the earth. It's that they need the resources, and Israel is rich in resources. Now, before 1948, this was not true. It was a wasteland. Since then, and especially recently, Israel is a vast storehouse of resources. With modern technology, they've been able to to withdraw from the Dead Sea major amounts, and the Dead Sea has become a major source for sodium, chlorine, sulfur, potassium, calcium, magnesium, and bromide. Those are all essential for industry. Israel also recently has found vast discoveries or vast deposits of oil and natural gas just off the coast in the Mediterranean Sea within their waters and in the Golan Heights. And you wonder why Islamic nations want the Golan Heights? That's why, because there's oil there. So what is Russia trying to get, and all of these nations with them, what are they looking for? Gas, oil, natural resources. Israel now, today, has been recognized as one of the major sources of these resources in the world. In fact, Israel has discovered so much potential oil and natural gas that they could power their entire country and become energy independent and then be a major exporter into other countries with all the resources they have. And so they have become, literally, uh, for enemy nations, a prime target waiting to happen. We're not talking religiously. We're talking about just economically. Okay? Now, in this passage, if you look at at verse 13, it says, Sheba and Dedan, the merchants of Tarshish, all the young lions thereof, shall say unto thee, Art thou come to take spoil? Hast thou assembled thy company to take the prey, to carry away silver and gold, to take away cattle and goods, to take great spoil? So there's these countries that are mentioned here, Sheba and Dedan, and then the merchants of Tarshish. Okay? Now, we don't know specifically, but 
According, again, to uh, ancient records, according to migration patterns and other records that we have that are similar to these names, basically, scholars have said, well, Sheba and Dedan are probably countries in northern Arabia. And so northern Arabia, countries like um, Dubai, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates. Now, what are they defined by? Oil, right? I mean, everybody knows, oh, that's oil country. Okay, Israel's not that far away, and yet it says Sheba and Dedan, these Arabian countries, wonder why is Russia and all these other countries coming against Israel? Are you coming to get their resources? And then it says, young lions thereof. I'm sorry, Tarshish is the next one, Tarshish, and Tarshish was a city um, back in Paul's day, in fact, that was his goal. He wanted to take the gospel to Tarshish, and that was on the coast of Maine, or, or Maine, I'm sorry, I'm in the United States, the coast of Spain, okay, or Portugal, but Tarshish was kind of the westernmost city in the, the known world at that time, okay? So we're talking about Spain, but just west of Spain, northwest of Spain, is a country we now know as the United Kingdom or England, okay? So we could be talking about a general reference to Spain or England, And then it says, the young lions thereof. That phrase is talking about what came out of Tarshish, the countries that emanated out of Tarshish, or Spain and England. And then you can start putting a list together of the United States, Canada, Australia. Okay? So the Western world is kind of involved here. But they're only involved in protesting this invasion, and it never says anywhere in this chapter or in the next chapter, that they get involved. They're against the invasion, but they don't help Israel. There's a reason for that, okay? So we see, here's the setting. We have the time frame, possibly just before the tribulation starts. And then the aggression is in verse 17. Thus says the Lord Jehovah, art thou he of whom spoke I? In old times by my servants, the prophets of Israel, that prophesy in those days for many years, that I would bring thee against them. And it shall come to pass in that day when Gog shall come against the land of Israel, saith the Lord Jehovah, that my wrath will come up into my nostrils. For in my jealousy and in the fire of my wrath have I spoken. Surely in that day there shall be a great shaking of the land of Israel, so that the fishes of the sea, the birds of heaven, the beasts of the field, all the creeping things that creep upon the earth, all the men that are set upon the face of the earth shall shake at my presence, and the mountains shall be thrown down, the steep places shall fall, and every wall shall fall to the ground. The aggression is in verse 21. I will, I'm sorry, is, is, uh, is continued in verse 21, but I'm going to get to that in a minute. So the, these nations march against Israel, and God says, I'm going to draw you to this battle. The battle's going to begin, but then God intervenes, okay? There's no evidence that any other country comes to Israel's defense here. It just says that God's going to intervene. God initiated this. God drew these armies out, and God's going to intervene now. The other nations basically are standing around watching. In verse 20, he delineates or describes things that look like what we studied in the book of Revelation through the seals and through the trumpets and through the bold judgments. Great earthquakes, right? Um the uh, great, especially the earthquakes. The earth shall shake at my presence, he says. The mountains shall be thrown down. The steep places shall fall. Every wall shall fall to the ground. 
So many scholars, again, will take that and say, well, that means it's got to be during the tribulation, okay? Possibly. I'm not going to say that for sure. But even though God has initiated this military coalition to come against Israel, he does it not in judgment of Israel. And I want you to understand that. This is not another judgment of God against Israel. There's another reason why God draws these nations. And he says, it's because of my wrath against these nations. God is judging these nations for their past and present behavior toward Israel. He's judging them because of their persecution against his own people. And in verse 18, it says, His wrath will come up into his nostrils. He will execute his wrath for their sin upon them as nations because they've been persecutors of Israel for so long. And all of these nations, if you look at their history, have been enemies of Israel. May not, maybe not directly, but indirectly, they've always been against God's people for their entire existence. And so God judges them by bringing them into this battle. And then in verse 21, we have a continuation that talks about their defeat. And look how they're defeated. God says, I will call for a sword against him until all my mountains, saith the Lord Jehovah. Every man's sword shall be against his brother. That means the armies that are coming against Israel will fight each other. God doesn't need to send armies of his own out. They will fight each other. And verse 22, with pestilence, that's disease. With blood, I will enter into judgment with him, and then I will rain upon him and his hordes and upon the peoples that are with him an overflowing shower, that's rain, a great deluge of rain, great hailstones, fire, and brimstone. And I will magnify myself and sanctify myself, and I will make myself known in the eyes of many nations, and they shall know that I am Jehovah. So this great military coalition as they come against Israel is destroyed by God not by another nation. God's patience has been exhausted with these nations. And so he draws them out to battle so he can execute judgment upon them. And they end up killing each other, and then God kills them with fire and brimstone from heaven, with great hailstones, with great rains that flood the earth, with earthquakes. God's the victor here. And so... This is not anything new for Israel. Remember, through Israel's history, God has always promised to fight their battles for them, all the way from the time he led them out of Egypt. At the Red Sea, God destroyed the entire Egyptian army without Israel having to do anything. In fact, God told them, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. In Joshua chapter, I'm sorry, in Exodus chapter 23, God told them this as they were preparing to go into the land of Canaan. He says, I will send hornets before thee, which shall drive out the Hivite and the Canaanite and the Hittite from before thee. So God fought their battles in Canaan before they ever got there with hornets. Joshua chapter 10, there was the battle against the city of Gibeon. This was after the battle of Ai. And God sent hailstones during that battle. And the hailstones killed more soldiers than Israel did with the sword. In 2 Kings chapter 19, when Assyria came against Jerusalem, in one night the angel of God slaughtered 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. And the Jews went out the next morning to find the whole army dead, and all they did was pick up the loot that was left behind. So God fought their battles for them, just as he promised, and he will do that again here in this battle in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. Now, I used to think 
that Islam would be the one world religion that would take over the world during the end times. I thought, you know, this is the great conflict. Islam, starting with Ishmael, remember that? The illegitimate son of Abraham. He married, he didn't marry, he just had a son with Hagar because he lost faith, Sarah lost faith that Isaac wasn't going to be born because it took too long and they were too old, and so they initiated this action themselves to have a son, and Ishmael was born. And then when Isaac was born, Sarah kicked him out. But God gave a blessing, actually, to Hagar and to Ishmael, okay? But Ishmael has been a thorn in Israel's side ever since that time. Ishmael is the father of all the Arab nations. And look who is the ones who are the most aggressive against Israel. And so this has been the great conflict throughout all history. And so I figured, you know, in the end times we're talking about Islam, that's got to be where the Antichrist comes from against Israel. I don't think so, because here we have a whole conglomeration of Islamic armies that God completely wipes out. And so he destroys the entire military force of all Islamic nations right now. So in this battle of Gog and Magog, God wipes out the major armies of Islam and he eliminates them as a military threat on the earth. Now this sets the stage for the Antichrist. Because what does the Antichrist use to unite the world under one world religion? The apostate church. Without Islam... The apostate church becomes the major religion in the world. And that's what the Antichrist uses. And Islam, by the way, is the only religion in its tenets and recorded in its so-called scriptures that followers of other religions should be executed if they do not convert. It is not a peaceful religion. And they are the most intolerant religion on the face of the earth, and so God will destroy it here in Ezekiel chapter 38, as they descend upon Israel for their own purposes. Now, the purpose is God's purpose. Verse 23. Verse 23 says that God will glorify himself. Thus, I will magnify myself, I will sanctify myself, I will be known in the eyes of many nations. They shall know that I am the Lord. And so God is the author of this event. He calls these nations to war to glorify himself. And that phrase that they will know that I am the Lord is repeated 60 times in the book of Ezekiel. The actions that God takes against people on the earth are to make himself known. And so I want you to think about this battle taking place. All the world is aware of it. Everybody's watching. Nobody wants to be involved but everybody knows what's going on. And as they watch, maybe even watching live through internet coverage, God destroys these armies through supernatural means. Now, all the nations of the world at that point realize that this is the hand of God. God destroys these nations, not a great army on the earth. It comes out of nowhere to them. And I think God uses that to point people to him and to say, there is a God, I am God, and I am the ruler over all nations, and I will destroy whom I will destroy, and I will lift up those whom I will lift up. And I will keep my promises to Israel that I will protect them. And so the whole world literally at this point, knows that God is God. 
Now, if this happens just before the tribulation period starts, before the Antichrist rises to power, I want you to think about the message that God is sending to the world before the Antichrist rises up. He basically tells them, I am your safety. I am your deliverance. You cannot rely on armies. You cannot rely on military. You cannot rely on economic strength or political strength. I am the God of the world, of the universe, and you want safety? You come to me. That's the message that we see in Ezekiel chapter 38 and chapter 39 going forward. And so just before the world goes into great turmoil and is brought together under the Antichrist, God gives them this opportunity to see him in action, and yet they still rebel because of the wickedness of their hearts. Now, I don't have time to go into detail of chapter 39, okay? Let me just point out a couple things very quickly. The beginning of chapter 39 just rehashes the end of chapter 38. It talks about God destroying the enemies. He destroys them for his own glory, and it makes mention of the birds that will eat their flesh. Verses 21 through 24, there's more details about God uh, calling the birds together and about uh, his judgment against these nations. And so God makes very clear his purpose, to glorify himself on the earth, to make his name known among all nations. That's what this is all about. The aftermath is in uh, verses 9 through 16 in uh, chapter 39. I'm not going to read that. Go back and read that when you get home. But what happens in chapters, uh, chapter 39 is that after this battle is over, basically the Jews, because everything happens in the mountains of Israel, remember, so it's right in their homeland, and the Jews see God, destroy the enemy, give them this victory, and they go out and they start to collect all the leftover weapons. And, the, and Ezekiel tells us that they collect the weapons that are left over, and the weapons and what they collect from those armies provides them energy for seven years. They don't have to go and cut wood out of the woods. Ezekiel 39 tells us that. Seven years from these weapons, they will have what they need to, to heat their homes, to provide energy for them. Now, some commentators say, well, this shows that it's a nuclear war that happens. Possibly. I don't know. Okay, I can't verify that. They say it's a nuclear war because obviously this leftover nuclear fuel from the weapons that weren't used, they could use to provide power for the whole nation. Maybe. That's a possibility. Okay? But we're talking about millions, possibly as many as 50 million soldiers that are coming against Israel at this point. And think about how many weapons, even if it was just guns, are left over. But God says they will collect those and use them for fuel in their country for seven years. It also says that it will take them seven months, in verse 12, to bury the dead. Seven months shall the house of Israel be burying them that they may cleanse the land. Now, some commentators say if you interpret this according to the Hebrew, it, there's a gap of seven months. So they have to wait seven months before they bury the dead, and then it takes them another seven months to bury the dead. Again, indicating that they have to wait for the radiation from a nuclear war to kind of dissipate, and then they can go in, and, you know, the whole cleansing of the land. I'm not going to verify. I can't say it's a nuclear war. It's possible. I know that God is the one that destroys these enemies. That's the important point we need to focus on. Okay, but it takes them seven months to bury the dead, and there are actually professionals 
that are going to go be appointed full time to go and find the dead bodies and bury them. And Ezekiel 39 tells us that as well. And when they find a bone, and again, it's not bodies, they find bones. Nuclear war? Maybe. I don't know. Okay, but when they find a bone, they mark it, and then the specialists come in and they take care of the, the dead bodies or the, the remains of the soldiers. Okay, regardless of whether this event is nuclear or not, these details, again, give us some instances about the timing. If we put this in the middle of the tribulation, Israel is running from the Antichrist, and so they don't have time to bury anybody or to collect weapons. They're running for their lives, so it can't be at the middle of the, the tribulation period. It doesn't fit, okay? If we put this before the tribulation, it could be three and a half years before the tribulation. And that gives us a full seven years that they're burning for energy. Maybe it's just before the tribulation. Again, I don't know, okay, because the Bible doesn't tell us the specific time frame. But based on what the Bible tells us, you can't put it at the middle of the tribulation because seven years would put it into the millennial kingdom. That's not going to happen, possibly. Three and a half years before the tribulation begins, that makes perfect sense because for three and a half years they're at peace with the Antichrist until he breaks that treaty at the midway point. And so I lean toward this event happening before the tribulation period begins, which brings up the question, so is there a gap between the rapture of the church and when the tribulation period begins? And I think the answer to that could be yes, because you think about millions of people being just disappearing from the earth in the rapture, and the chaos that ensues, they're not going to come up with an immediate solution to that. Okay, look at governments now. They can't solve anything in a short time period. Okay, uh, having a president for four years, I mean, by the time you get through the four years, it's almost like, well, we finally figured out what the problems are. Now we're going to try to start fixing stuff. And if they're not reelected, then you've got to start all over. Okay, and, and the world operates the same way. Politics does not get things done. And so there's very possibly a, a gap between when the rapture happens, the church is gone, millions of people are disappearing, have, have disappeared, and now the world is in chaos. What are we going to do? And they have this years of turmoil, and eventually the Antichrist rises to power and brings the solution to the world. And in that time, Israel has been supplied by God with fuel, with anything that they need. God is their protector. Okay? So all of that comes out of these two chapters in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. So the premise then is, we were in Revelation 20, the end of millennial kingdom, Gog and Magog. That is a different battle than what you read here in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. Now I'm going to leave you with this question. And there's no answer to it yet. Is what we see in Russia the beginning of Gog and Magog? Because I've had people ask me that. The answer is, I don't know. Because we haven't seen this coalition yet. But if we do, I hope your heart is right, because that means Christ is coming back very soon. Okay? When we look at... Uh, uh, passages of prophecy like Ezekiel 38 39 it seemed just like oh that blows my mind I don't get it at all you see how relevant it becomes to us when we put it in perspective of what the Bible teaches overall this could very well happen in our lifetime 
or at least begin in our lifetime. We see the beginnings of it coming together, okay? But the other major point, and you can't miss this, God's sovereignty. God is the one who initiates this, and he does it for his glory. Now, in Sunday school this morning, Habakkuk was complaining because Israel and Judah were being attacked, persecuted, all of this bad was coming upon them. There was shortage of food. People were hungry. And Habakkuk goes to God and says, why? I don't understand. You're supposed to protect your people. Why? Why are you letting all this happen? And God really doesn't ever give him the answer. Habakkuk kind of comes to the answer as he reflects on who God is. And in the end of the book, as I read this morning, as we started the service, Habakkuk says, it's in God's hands. I'm going to rejoice in God. God's going to provide, even though there's no food, even though it seems like there's no safety, nothing's happening. I'm going to rejoice in God because he is my safety. He is my provision. He is my portion. Everything I need is in him. Okay? There's the message that I want to leave with you. It's all about God. God will glorify himself even in all these weird events that are happening in the world today. It could be that God is orchestrating these things to glorify himself. He will glorify himself through it. We just have to be paying attention. All right, let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you again for your word. We thank you that you are in control of everything in the world. Even, it seems, even though it seems like there are countries that are going rogue, there are wars that are happening, there are nations that are aggressors against your people and against other nations, Lord, you have told us that you're in control of all of it. And so we look for you to get the glory out of it. We don't look for good for ourselves. That's not our purpose. We want you to be glorified. We want your name to be proclaimed throughout the earth, and you said it would be. And so, Lord, help us to rejoice in you as the Lord God of heaven, the ruler of the earth, controlling everything that happens. Lord, help us to find our security and safety in you, and help us to trust in you as you've told us to, so that we might be at peace truthfully, even as the world is at conflict around us. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for your promise to take care of us. Lord, we just praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.